You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, I probably broke this mic earlier. Is this working? Praise God. What's up, fam? Where's Kaysen at? Kaysen, what is the appropriate response when somebody says, what's up, fam, to you? Y'all say what's up, fam, back. What's up, fam? What's up, man? So gangster up in here. I love it. <laughs> All right, my name is Lo. As Jenny just said, most of my stuff's true. I am Erica's baby daddy. I have two gorgeous chocolate kids. I'll show you guys a picture of the family. We're somewhere up there, I think. Yeah, that's us. So we're an advertisement for cocoa butter and chocolate. That's us. The boy is Maverick. Y'all say, hey, Maverick. Maverick. He can't hear you. That's my wife with all the pretty, that's Erica, and then I'm holding Emerson, it's my little girl, and then I'm the dude with the Colgate teeth. That's our whole squad. We live in Houston, we like it a lot. Who is that shout out Texas over here? Yeah, big old Colts, we love us. Some Texas, uh, we're kind of obsessed with ourselves. I hang out with a group of people called Urban Hymnal, some of the squads right there, they're gonna hang out with us tonight. We're embarrassingly interested in Jesus, and we love him, and we think he's doing some really special stuff in our city. Uh, we have a hunch that he's doing some special things here, because every time I come here, I just feel like there's just new things happening. And not just like y'all bringing 20,000 people into this space, but just even the small things. The thing I'm currently believing is that God cares about the big, but he's much more interested in the important. And so there's some big things that have been happening over the last couple of years, and we'll talk about that today. There's some big things that God is doing in Scripture, but deeper than that, He's interested in doing something important in your life. I've heard a lot of people say, when you're called to something big, God's going to do great things in you. And maybe he will, but I think that's relative. Maybe God wants to do something huge in your life. I can't say, but I can say for sure there's an important work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you, specifically this morning. So we're going to invite him to speak. We're going to invite him to give a blessing in this place. I'm actually going to read a blessing out of Numbers chapter 6. I'm pretty sure you know it. You probably could sing it. And that's going to frame our time together. So before we jump in, I want you guys to reflect on this blessing that we find in Numbers chapter 6, starting in verse 24. I'm going to just read it over you, okay? You ready? Here it goes. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his countenance towards you, meaning may God pay attention to you, and may he bring you peace. I'm going to read this again, but I want to invite you to reflect on some things as we read it. Thing number one is that where you find this in Scripture, there's a whole thing called the Nazarite vow right before this. It's basically God saying, I want you guys to do certain things to show me you're serious about a relationship. So grow your hair out, don't cut it, get dreadlocks, they look like me. So they're, they're, they're committing themselves as Nazarites before the Lord, and they're basically saying, God, we are very serious about loving you. So much so, we're going to give you this vow, this consecration, we're going to do some extra stuff to show you we mean business. And the way that the scripture works is that the scripture is very intentional to cut that off before it gets into this blessing. Meaning, the biblical authors want you to know that God cares about your commitment to him. But this blessing has nothing to do with that. God is not reserving these things for those who are obedient. God is not reserving these things for those who have good moral behavior. God does not want to bless you just because you behave, because you get straight A's because you're cute. That's not why God blesses. God intentionally tells Moses, give this blessing to all the people of Israel, not just those who are religious. So before you let your flesh or shame or the enemy kind of distract you from this, I'm going to read this again, and I want you to invite yourself to just posture yourself before the Lord and receive that this is what God's heart and intention is over your life. Not when you perform, not in your good days, just every moment of your life. The Lord wants to bless you. The Lord wants to keep you. The Lord wants to make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
The Lord wants to turn his countenance toward you, and the Lord wants to give you peace. Father, we posture our hearts before you this morning, and we ask that you would do that work, that we not strive for or try to earn it, but that we would just allow you to breathe life over us and bring us into the kind of peace you want us to live into. Would you shape us, would you frame in us a kind of kingdom perspective and do a work in us, Holy Spirit, that might change us forever. You name me pray. Amen. So I was born in California. It's pretty, it's cool weather, it's all that good stuff. And in about the seventh grade, my mom chose to move us to Mississippi because she makes poor decisions sometimes. So we go from Cali, which is amazing, to Mississippi, which is pretty ratchet. We moved, uh, we moved to the South in about 2003. At the time we came there, Mississippi had a lot of struggles. We were one of the more impoverished states, but we also weren't the smartest of states. So we were the 48th smartest state in the country. And most folks in Mississippi didn't even know to get offended by that because they didn't know there were only 50 of them. So we, we didn't really great with the whole education thing, right? Uh, there's a couple of things that like you can just find correlations for. So where there's a lack of education, uh, there tends to be also gang violence. So we had a lot of that. Where you have a lot of gang violence, you typically have a lot of people who live in more impoverished communities. And so uh, poverty, violence, lack of education, all of this was like the assumptions of the day. And people said a bunch of backwards things about Mississippi, like they're racist and they're not educated. And they, they said all those things mostly because it's true. Like that was legitimately the, the dynamic when you go there. So when we come, 2003, they decided to make a couple of reforms. By about 2005 or six, they said, we're going to fix the education system by getting rid of all the racial divide, getting rid of all the gang violence. We're going to make sure these kids feel unified and at one with each other. We're going to put them in school uniforms to stop making them dress like gangsters, and we're gonna make sure they're all wearing the same things, they feel unified. And they said, we're gonna take it a step further, we're gonna make them patriotic, we're gonna put them in these red, white, and blue colors. And so, in an attempt to fix a broken dynamic, they had a school full of kids who looked like Crips, Bloods, and the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> it did not work, it didn't work at all. But what I taught me and got me kind of reflecting on is if there's a broken thing, if there's a broken system, it's really hard to point out what a solution's gonna be. If something's wrong at a societal level, where do you turn? If something's wrong with a culture or a system, how do you begin to fix that? If there's something wrong with my car, I take it to a mechanic, he knows what he's doing. Something's wrong with my mouth, I go to a dentist, he knows how to fix that joint. He's educated there, he knows what he's doing. But at, at a heart level, if something's wrong with us as a people, if the narrative that we buy into and, and the way that shapes our culture is just at odds with human flourishing, what do we do? How do we fix that? If you were to turn to the gospel, you'll find that the gospel kind of excludes itself from like the self-help genres of the book section because the, the gospel doesn't really think that you are the solution to the problem. It also doesn't make a case that a better version of you is the solution to the problem. The gospel actually says you're kind of the problem. <laughs> like the issue is kind of us. In every iteration of human history, in every version of society, there's always like an us versus them there's always a, a haves and have-nots. There's a less than and a greater than. The way that we typically do our life and do society, we don't, we don't gravitate towards holiness and perfection. We tend to gravitate towards selfishness and self-seeking. And it's not because it's the truest version of who we are. Scripture says a lot of things about who we are at our core. You're made in the image of God and you're loved. You're a son and a daughter of God. He believes in you. The Lord wants to turn his face and shine upon you. He's so glad every time he sees you. The truth of who you are is beautiful. It's complex. It's beautiful. But there's something on top of that layer of the story. And, and what we would say that layer of the story is, the thing that distorts our view of what God might want to do in our world, we would call it sin. Scripture views sin as just a broken way of seeing things. 
Look at the very first story in Genesis. So Genesis chapter 1, God makes a good world. He fills with all kinds of raw materials. There's, there's birds, there's, there's bees, there's, there's mountains. There's stuff there that's going to make cool things later on. So there's like raw material. So he's like, yo, take this world, tend and keep the garden, go somewhere with it. One day you guys are going to make planes and Snickers, and it's going to be an amazing time. It's a bunch of good stuff here. And God is so, he has such confidence in what he's made in his image that he's like, yeah, I trust you guys with this. I believe you're going to make it better. It's going to be awesome. And God hands them a story. He says, I, I believe in you, and I believe you're wired a certain way, so don't eat that. Not good for you. All this is for your freedom and enjoyment. Genesis 3, we, we have a story where another narrative comes into the scene, and we believe this story. And once we buy into the lie, it shapes how we see You notice that? It says that Eve saw the fruit as good for eating and desirable for making one wise. It says that she she handed it to her husband. He ate with her. And when they ate, their eyes were open. They're no longer seeing things the same way. Their, their, Their narrative has been shaped. Their perspective of who God is and what he wants to do in their lives is lost. And so now if you were to read that blessing over them, they wouldn't hear, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you. The primary way they would see that story is they would be like, well, I have to bless myself and protect myself. I have to tend and keep my own self because I can't trust God wants to do it. I don't see the Lord turning his face towards me and and being gracious to me. Now I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of the Father. I'm hiding from him in the bushes when I hear him walking in the garden. I no longer think that he wants me to be out in the open that he has a light about him when he sees me. Now I'm covering myself up and I'm hiding as if my nakedness is something to be ashamed of. I would argue that that's not just their story. That's how we see as well. That something tends to take our attention away from what God might be wanting to do, giving us a place to be found in him, to be loved by him. Something distorts the vision. I see this played out in a number of ways. My daughter last weekend had this like fall festival at her school. And she is, uh, as most parents think, I think my kid's cuter than all those other kids. Like she's just this adorable little kid. She puts on this little dress. I forget which princess she was dressed like, but she's dressed like a princess and she's very proud about it. When the kid's proud of themselves, they, have, they do this thing. They like jump into it like, Ugh, I'm here. Like that's that's her, her posture. And so she's jumping out at everybody like, yo, see me, look at me. And she's really proud of her outfit. So we, we go to her school for the fall festival. We're hanging out. She has two teachers in the classroom that are supposed to be like handing the kids candy and all this stuff like that. She runs in. She does the jump. Boom, I'm here. And rather than them getting excited about it, they didn't pay much attention. Now, to be fair, they were dressed up like dinosaurs and they didn't have arms. And so... <laughs> They're trying to take care of children like this. Like, how do, you, how do you do that? So it's a hard go for them. And they weren't trying to be mean to my kid. They were just really preoccupied. Didn't have the bandwidth to see her. So when Emmy walks in, she's excited. They don't give her that kind of energy. She feels a little bit, a little discouraged by it. She keeps pushing, though. She sees a bunch of free candy. She's hanging out in there. Other kids walk in, and now the teachers just coincidentally have more time on their hands. And so when these kids walk in, they're like, oh, my God, look at your outfit. You look amazing. And I'm, I'm seeing this happen, and I can see my kids' gears turning. And she's seeing a dynamic where when I came into a space, I did not feel welcome. And I'm seeing other people get something I did not have. I don't feel like I have a place here anymore. I feel placeless. This is their place, not mine. And so she was like, okay, I have to figure out how do, I, how do I make sense of this space? How do I navigate this? And she's four years old, so you just watch her look, bounce around the room, look a little discouraged, try to get somebody's attention. doesn't work out. So she goes over to the edge of the room. She grabs this like, big jar of candy because they're passing out free candy. And so now she's like, Daddy, I'm going to hand kids candy. So in the space of not feeling at home there, not feeling like she has a place in this environment, she's like, well, I'm, I'm going to give myself a role. When we don't feel like we have a place, our default is, well, let me just be busy and do something to earn my keep, 
to earn my worthiness, to earn the feeling of being worthwhile. She's passing out candy to these kids. She's like, Daddy, look, I'm serving. And I'm like, yeah, but the candy's free, so they probably don't care. But I'm proud of you. But I'm, I'm noticing her doing this, and it, it feels a lot like me. So a couple of months ago, there was a small little thing y'all started doing. Um, like, y'all asked the Holy Spirit to come here, and he started showing up and doing cool stuff. And so, like, thousands of people are interacting with the Holy Spirit and I heard about this when I'm speaking at a Christian college about four hours away from here. It's called Mount Vernon. So I'm up at Mount Vernon. I'm hanging out. I'm speaking to some kids. Uh, I'm, I'm supposed to speak to some kids on, on a Monday. But I fly in on a Sunday night. And as I get to the campus, it's like 11 o'clock at night. There's a bus that's coming back from here where some kids are like, yo, we just heard about what's happening at Asbury. Like the Lord is touching their campus. And we want to pray like they're praying. And so they stay up until the middle of the night just asking the Holy Spirit to visit with them, to be in his presence. And it's beautiful. They say, hey, you're our speaker for tomorrow. Do you want to come and hang out? And I was like, I sure do. In reality, I did not because I was tired. And I'm too old for that now. But I was like, I can't not be hanging out with the kids. So I go. I go to pray with the kids. And I'm in the space. It was beautiful to see these kids go after the Lord. And they're singing to their hearts content. And they're, they're, they're bursting at the seams with tears and emotion. And it's amazing. The only thing that was not amazing was the music was terrible. <laughs> it's trash. It was not good. There's a young man up there who's playing these songs, and he, he's just not gifted. Like, the Lord has not called him to music. It's not his thing. But God is visiting with these people. And, and, and the way my vision has been trained is the Holy Spirit don't move unless you're in key. And so I, I, I play keys, and so I, I, I go up to them, and I'm like, hey, I tap this girl on the shoulder. And I was like, hey, it, it seems like he's, um, he could use some help. Um, with the piano. So if, if, if you don't mind, I, I'd love to just help him out with keys. Just let him know I can help. And she was like, cool. She never tells him. I sit back down and I'm watching these kids. They're going after Jesus. They're worshiping. They're praying all through the night. And I'm like, God, I love what you're doing in here. But that boy is killing me right now. <laughs> like, it, like I, I don't want him to get in the way of you moving, Lord. And so I'm going to offer my services again. I get up. I'm like, hey, maybe you forgot, baby girl. Um, I'm here. Uh, it, he's tired probably, you know, it's, it's six in the morning. Let me, let me help him out. I'll play keys. She's like, I'll let him know. Again, she never does. Um, I sit back down. They're still fumbling through worship. And I'm like, God, I think you would do something really special in this room if we can just get him off the piano. It'd be amazing. And the Lord kind of started reflecting to me like I am moving in this room. And what revival and what my presence and what interaction looks like for these kids may be different than how you grew up seeing it. But I'm at work here. You still have eyes to see. Your perspective, your, your, your vision, your vantage point is so fixated on one thing that you're missing how I'm moving in this space. And because I don't actually feel the presence of God, I'm not interacting with the presence of God the way I'm used to, I felt placeless. In an absence of a place, I tried to find a role. Let me do something to usher in your presence rather than let me just sit, be still, and know that you're moving. I would argue that, that everyone in this room in some way, shape, form, or fashion, you, you, you believe that, that there's more to life than just the going through the motions. Like the end-all goal of life is not to turn 65, retire, have 20 more good years, and die. That sounds like a really boring way of it. I think we're called to more. I think we're called to creating communion with the Lord and, and, and leaning into this idea of doing life with him, fellowship with him. This is how Paul frames it in Romans chapter 8. Verse 19, he says, all of creation is waiting in eager expectation for the, the children of God to be revealed. There's a groaning of creation. It's bursting at the seams. It cannot wait until you realize how much of a son and daughter you are. That's all it's waiting on. It's the only missing piece of a story right now is the revelation of who Christ is in you. 
that you realize that the, the, the co-mingling of, of, of man and God is what Christ came to do in the earth. And he has not stopped that work. So if the incarnation of Jesus is fully God and fully man, what Jesus wants to make in your life is the fullness of who you are and a loving relationship with the fullness of who God is. And not to find a balancing act of those two, but to bring them into perfect union. Creation is eager for you to realize how close the Father actually is to you and how deeply he wants to be in a relationship. This, Paul says, is a, is, is a powerful thing. So Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not afraid of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think it's power. It's dunamis. It has the ability to change something. It's so powerful that it actually it, it brings salvation to men. It's the power of God that saves us, that puts us in right perspective and right vantage point as to who God is and who he's calling us to be. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, he's like, no matter what you guys do, don't get this gospel wrong. Make sure you get the gospel right. I don't care if anybody comes preaching a different one to you. If it's me, one of the homies, if it's your mama, I don't care who it is. Let nobody mess up this gospel story. It's not how much you can work for God. It's that God has done a work in coming near to you. Now, now some of us, we tend to overemphasize certain parts of the gospel, and I get that. If your vantage point is like mine, you think that the music has to sound good for the spirit to move. We think that the gospel wants to put us in church and make us well-behaved and obedient. We think the gospel wants to make us abstain from certain things. None of that's bad. I just think it's overemphasizing certain points. There's an Italian word that I learned a couple years ago. It's called caricature. Can you say caricature? Caricature is just an image. It's a, it's a loaded portrait, what the word means. We've seen caricatures as like when you go to a carnival and you see a painting of somebody's face and it makes them look kind of weird. I'll give you an example of that. So here's a picture of my friend Greg. Uh, this is Greg. That's uh, off. <laughs> Maybe you know him, all right? A caricature is a loaded portrait. So what, what the idea is, is when you overemphasize certain parts of the image, it'll change their view entirely. There's a couple apps you can do this on as well. So here's a loaded portrait of Greg, say if he was in Barbie. <laughs> All right? It's overemphasizing certain parts. He looks a little more tan here. Hair's a little more wavy. He's actually a stud. I'm not going to lie. It's a good look. It's the Barbie version of him. Now here's another loaded portrait of him. It's like a Pixar version. Bigger eyes, rosier cheeks. Weird-looking chin, gorgeous guy. Load different parts of it like an anime character. So this is Greg Senpai. The, <laughs> we're overemphasizing certain parts to give you a different image, right? I'm going to ask you to take that down because that's going to distract me the entire time. So if, if you overemphasize certain parts of the story, the story can become more entertaining. The story can make more points. But if you overemphasize certain parts, you may risk losing the point. Those are cool images of Greg. It's not actually Greg. If you overemphasize certain parts of the gospel story, you may overemphasize the holiness part of it, and God just wants you to perform. You may overemphasize the charismatic part of it. God just wants to bring 2,000 people to your city and call that revival. You may overemphasize the relational part of it. Yes, you're made for relationship. But you're not defined just by the folks that are around you. You may overemphasize the sin part of it. If I made a mistake, if I sinned against God, maybe he doesn't want to reveal himself to me anymore. Those are just parts of the story. They're not the point. The point of the story is the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the fullness of, in, in our presence. He, he tabernacled among us, dwelt among us, and brings us into perfect unity with him. The point of the story is actually Jesus. It's not us. And so if the emphasis becomes him, if, if our affection gets poured on him, the weight of it is, I just find my place in him. I am hidden in Christ, as Paul says. I'm not just a worker of him. I would argue that what God wants to do in y'all's campus is not just to get you guys busy, to give you a bunch of roles. I think he wants to give you a place. I think he wants to invite you into a deeper level of relationship and intimacy and knowing of him. So we're going to end the, the way we started. We're going to read Numbers chapter 6 again. And I'm going to invite you guys to some reflection as we read it. 
The first part of number six says, the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. That word keep is actually the same word that's used in Genesis 2 for tend and keep the garden. God wants to cultivate something and protect it. It's not your job to make your life a project that God's proud of at the end of the day. He's already proud. He's already for you. So the reflection I want to invite you guys to consider is where do you feel responsible? Where do you feel chiefly responsible for creating your own favor and your own protection? And what risk would you take if you knew God actually had my back? God's blessing goes before me. He's going to take care of me. Are you living a life of risk management where you're trying to decide if it's worth pursuing, if it's worth stepping into? Or do you believe that the hand of God is actually on your life? You believe God is blessing you and God is keeping you. Second one is the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. It's the image of a father seeing his child and him beaming with joy. He's giving you good and perfect gifts, not because he has to, because he wants to. He just finds pleasure and delight in you. So as you reflect, just consider where are areas that God enjoys me? Not that he wants something from me. Not that he's demanding that I get better. Where does God enjoy you? And if that's not a place you currently feel, man, God, I feel your delight and your pleasure in me. And maybe we go before the Father and ask him, give me a prophetic vision of who you are and how you take pleasure and delight in me. The last one is the Lord turn his face towards you, turn his countenance towards you and bring you peace. This is God saying, I'm paying attention to you. My, my face is towards you, my countenance towards you. I see you right where you are. The last thing I'd invite you to reflect on is where areas that you feel isolated and alone. Where are areas where you feel unnoticed. In the most places that we invite the Spirit of God to come and breathe, and stir. We can open our eyes to how he's actually near. Where a place you feel chiefly responsible for blessing and taking care of yourself. What are ways in which you believe God enjoys you? And what might it look like for you to believe that God's attention is on you? Abba, we're asking that you would bring your presence near to us, that you would do this work going to sit for a brief moment and ask you to respond to us, Jesus. So let's not just know a thing that you're saying, but to really believe it and hold it as true. You want to bless us and keep us. You want to make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. You want to turn your attention towards us and let it fill us with peace. give you our trust this morning, that you'll do that work. We invite you, Spirit of God, to draw out of us the places in which we doubt it. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen.